Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. There are some character traits that you just know them when you see it. When someone acts with integrity, you don't sit there and wonder if it was a good thing or not. When someone acts with virtue, we are able to identify it without question. And the same applies to behavior that we would consider to be vile. When we see someone doing something that we consider to be immoral or even distasteful, we don't have to run it through a filter to determine how we feel about it, do we? We know it when we see it. And as we think back to the passage that we were looking at last week and the story that we read there about Judah, we had no difficulty looking at that story and evaluating the actions of Judah and his family and determining that they were something that we see as being depraved. No way we come to his ignoring his daughter-in-law and then hiring someone he believes to be a prostitute and come away morally indifferent about what he's done. You know it when you see it. We can even go back to the chapter before that one. And I'm guessing there isn't a one of us who didn't feel as though the sons of Joseph, contemplating the murder of their brother and then selling him into slavery, were acting in a morally good way. We saw their actions as heinous. You know it when you see it. And you likely recall that I drew out last Sunday that what we feel about the actions of Joseph's brothers and how we look at the actions of Judah is a natural contrast to the integrity of Joseph that we read about this morning. Once again, you know integrity when you see it. And while we had to deal with the evil actions of Judah a week ago, This morning, we are blessed to see an example of virtue and an example of holiness in the life and in the behavior of Joseph. Now, before we get ourselves into the text, let's line out the points that I've decided on here that we can navigate it and move through it and apply it. So the first thing that we see here this morning is that Joseph is excelling despite the circumstances that he found himself in. Now, we know the story. And so we expect expect this all to happen. But is it really unexpected? If you were hearing the story of Joseph for the first time, you would expect him to be destitute. And you would likely say that his circumstances allow him not to have to do well. He's in slavery. What do you expect him to do? How can he possibly thrive? But this is not what we find, though. He's thriving in Egypt. And we find that this is because God is the one who has his hand upon him. God is blessing Joseph. Secondly, we find that Joseph is tested. As I already mentioned, Judah and his brothers have been shown to us to be examples of immorality and having a corrupt nature. And when they are tested, what do they do? They fail. Well, now Joseph has an option to pursue the things of the flesh and to act in a worldly way. 
But Joseph does not succumb to this temptation, and he acts with integrity because he does not want to sin against God. This is a consideration that we don't see his worldly brothers making at all. And our third and final point today is that despite the faithfulness and the integrity of Joseph, he is once again persecuted. But we find that God remains faithful to him despite the trials that he has to endure. For everything that we find to be noble and good in Joseph, we would expect him to be excelling by the world's standards, but instead we find that he is once again afflicted. But yet God remains faithful to him, and he is working to rescue his people. And so let's get into this passage and take a look at how Joseph has taken advantage of the negative situation that his brothers have placed him in as we look here at verses 1 through 6. After the interlude with the situation with Judah and Tamar, Moses brings us back to what we feel is the story that we're really more interested in anyway. If we were reading this for the first time, this is what, what, what we would have been waiting and wanting to know about. Joseph has been sold into slavery. Jacob thinks he's dead. And while there's some interesting drama and scandal in the story with Judah, it's the type of subplot that you're wanting to hurry through because we want to get back to the main story, the main plot, and find out what's happening to Joseph. And so Moses transitions us back there well by reminding us of what has happened with Joseph. He has ended up in Egypt, of all places, and in the house of the captain of the guard who's known as Potiphar. And it's important that we take a second and get to know what his name means. Potiphar means the one who the sun god Ra has given. Not only is he captain of the guard, but he is considered to be a divine blessing by the Egyptians. Just the fact that Joseph has ended up in his household instead of somewhere else as a menial laborer tells us something about the divine providence of God on the life of Joseph. Even though he's in slavery, he finds himself in a house of high position, and we find that he is making the most of it, and the hand of the Lord God is upon him. You wouldn't think it possible, but Joseph is successful even as a slave. And as a part of this, he has advanced all the way to being in the house of his master. Now this is, this is likely a pretty big step up from being anywhere else, and was most likely an earned position. And so we have to feel a little passage of time here in the life of Joseph. He is not instantly going to end up in the house of Potiphar, is he? He had to endure. He had to shine in the positions that he was in before. And Joseph did just that. But why is that? It's because the Lord is with him. The Lord has caused Joseph to succeed. Now this is a pretty good arrangement. And so it causes Potiphar to put Joseph in charge of everything. It's not only good for Joseph, it's good for Potiphar. He's got this guy who he probably didn't pay too much for as a slave, just the going rate. And now everything is turning up roses for him. His house is being blessed. And I've got to wonder what this exactly looked like. How did Potiphar's life improve? 
Was the food lasting longer? Were his investments doing better? Were his crops having higher yields? Were the other slaves becoming stronger and having a higher level of productivity? Regardless of what this looked like, it was obvious to Potiphar that something was going on. And ultimately, the primary benefits to him is that he just gets to chill. He doesn't have to worry about a thing other than the food that he has to eat. He is living the easy life. And what I want us to see here is not that Potiphar is living well, but that Joseph has God blessing him. And Joseph is excelling despite what we would have expected to occur when we came back to his story here in chapter 39. And this isn't because Joseph is a productivity master. It's not because he's smarter. He, he very well may have been a productivity master, but that isn't the reason he's excelling. There were probably other people under the charge of Potiphar who could have organized his house well. The difference is that God is blessing Joseph. That is what we are meant to feel and we, what we are meant to understand here. And now we're going to see that Joseph is being tested. Does he deserve this blessing that God is putting on him? Will he act with integrity as this blessed one of God? Or will he fail? Will he act in a depraved manner like his brother Judah? And we see that Joseph is tested in perhaps the most soap opera way that you and I can imagine as we move on to verses 6 through 10. And this soap opera nature of the story, as I put it, is set up really well by Moses here because he lets us know that he is not only handsome in appearance, but he is handsome in form, right? Whatever the standard was for being a handsome fella in Egypt back then, Joseph was clearly blessed with it. And so the drama picks up quick in the text here because we find out that the wife of Potiphar is making eyes at Joseph and she is warm to his form, as they say. And we're told that she is more than just observing his attractiveness. She wants him to lie with her. Now Joseph here is being tempted with the sin of the flesh, just as Judah was. The wife of Judah dies, he's lonely, and so he lies with a prostitute while he's away from home. That's an important parallel to understand. And it's important that we consider just what is involved in this situation for Joseph. He's away from home. But it's more than a question of just, does he desire pleasure or not? Remember, he is a slave. And he is the property of more than just Potiphar. He has to deal with whether or not he is going to upset his master's wife. And we see that Joseph has a clear answer for her, and it addresses the two loyalties that he feels. He acknowledges that he has charge over the entire house. Potiphar doesn't have to worry about a thing. Joseph is just below Potiphar in household status, and he can do pretty much anything that he wants. But he reminds Potiphar's wife that nothing has been held back from him except her. Now, the text doesn't inform us of why this is. Is this just a general cultural understanding Or Potiphar has made this known to him explicitly. But what we see is that this is more than just being in submission to his earthly master. Because what does Joseph say? He realizes that his sin 
would be more than just an offense to Potiphar. It would be wicked. It would be sinning against God. So there's an important point that we need to stop and make a quick observation about here. Joseph considers this to be a violation against God. Now I'm going to point out something obvious here, but it's important that we take note of this. Think about where we are in our Bibles, right? This is all the further we were, maybe. We were right at the beginning. This is Genesis 39. You have to turn right through 11 more chapters to get to Genesis, and then you have to go through 19 more chapters of Exodus before you get to any thou shalt nots in your Bible. And so what this should make us very aware of is the fact that sexual sin is not simply something that is established because God put his finger into rock and etched away the words, thou shalt not commit adultery. The prohibitions God makes against sexual sin is inherently connected to the created order. Joseph understands what is going on if he were to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife, and it has never been stated Thou shalt not commit adultery. He connects it back to the created order. And you know this because we've addressed it in Genesis 2 with the creation details of Adam and Eve. And I went back to that created order again when we were confronted with homosexual sin in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't have to be told, once again, that adultery is a sin when we read the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife here. And we don't have to be told fornication is a sin when we saw Judah uniting himself to a prostitute or someone who we thought was a prostitute in the previous chapter. The created order and what we know about the nature of God and his creation of male and female to become one flesh informs our sexual ethic even without the explicit thou shalt not statement in Exodus 20. And so Joseph is concerned here with violating the law of God, with sinning against God. Joseph has integrity. And once again, we know it when we see it. This is a trial for Joseph. He has plenty of reasons to give in. She's pressuring him. She is his master's wife, and isn't he supposed to obey her? And let's not forget that he might even find this enjoyable. And whoever needs to know... It could be their little secret, right? But Joseph does not give in, even though we read that she offers this temptation day after day after day. And we see that there is some scheming on the part of Potiphar's wife as the story continues with verses 11 and 12. Now, we aren't told if the house being empty is planned out by Potiphar's wife, but she still takes advantage of the situation. She thinks maybe she can get Joseph to give in by the fact that there won't be anyone around to tell on them. But Joseph is not rejecting her advances because he's concerned with being caught, is he? He's rejecting her advances out of respect for his master, and more importantly, because he does not want to sin against the Lord. And as we look at this text, we find an excellent example from Joseph here as we consider how to resist sin. And it's so important that we stop And we dwell on that here as a point of application. Notice what Joseph does. He doesn't even 
He doesn't try to accommodate her. Even a little. What does he do? He flees. He gets out of there. So quickly, in fact, that he leaves a piece of clothing behind. And the application point I want us to understand here is that Joseph flees from sin. We like to cuddle up to our sin and get, to as, get as near to it as we possibly can without doing it. We believe that we're in control or that our hearts are in the right place. And so it isn't really sinful or it isn't as bad as someone else's sin. But what does Joseph do when he is tempted? Joseph runs away from sin. And you and I need to seriously evaluate how we view the sin that is tempting us. Are we listening to the temptation and cozying up to it, thinking that we can handle it and we can be in control? Or are we doing what Joseph does here? Are we fleeing it? Are we running away from it? Do we put ourselves in situations where we can be tempted and sin, or do we run from our sin? And this is a tough question for us to consider because I'm guessing every one of us is prone to thinking, we're in control. But what we see here from Joseph is what we're called to do. We should flee from temptation that we might not sin against God. But it's important that while it is vital that we flee from sin, it does not mean that if we do flee from sin, everything is going to turn out peachy for us because we're faithful to the commands of God. We see Joseph is faithful here. And so this brings us to our final point for today, that despite his faithfulness, Joseph is persecuted. Taking a look here at verses 13 through 18, this is, this is where the scheming of Potiphar's wife really picks up, right? Joseph did the right thing. He fleed sin, except he left something behind that was easily used as evidence against him and the soap opera drama picks up big time. She flips the story, and suddenly he is the one who was attempting to make a move on her. It isn't true, but it's a believable story. And who do you think is going to doubt the word of the wife of Potiphar? Especially with the evidence she has. And by the way she comes across in the story, you get the idea that even if you don't believe her, you're going to say you believe her side of the story because you do not want to mess with this lady. So we see in verses 19 through 23 the next obvious step. She didn't make this story up for the sake of the servants. She contrived this falsehood, and it was meant to get to the ears of her husband because he's the one who can punish Joseph. Clearly, she wants Joseph to suffer for resisting her advances and this is the path, this is the way she is going to make it happen. Now there is always speculation on what Potiphar thinks about this situation. Uh, we're clearly told that his anger is kindled, but I have to wonder just how hot that fire gets. How is Joseph not immediately executed for this? Clearly, Potiphar is a very patient man, or he doesn't think that the evidence all adds up, or he trusts Joseph and doesn't maybe necessarily trust his wife. Regardless, the life of Joseph is spared. And this is just one more sign that the hand of God is once again on Joseph. His brothers wanted to kill him, but he's spared. Now he's accused of something that could easily get him executed, but he comes out of it once again with his life. God is doing something here, but he doesn't stay 
in this high position in the house of Potiphar. Some price had to be paid, and so he ends up in prison, but notice what type of prison this is. He is with the king's prisoners. I'm sure it wasn't an excellent excellent facility with a pool or anything. I'm sure there weren't very many amenities, but he isn't in a prison for slaves. And once again, we're brought to feel the pain along with Joseph. He was just checking in on his brothers a few chapters back, but he ends up in a pit and is sold into slavery. He was just desiring not to sin against God, but he's accused of the sin he fled from, and he ends up in prison. Thinking, poor Joseph, is a right and natural reaction. But the text doesn't leave us to mourn the plight of Joseph for very long, because we read some amazing words here. The Lord was with Joseph, and he showed him steadfast love. Despite the difficulties that Joseph is facing, he is in an excellent state of, a, state of affairs, because the sovereign Lord of all of creation has steadfast, he has unending love for him. And so even in prison, the hand of God is upon Joseph And he rises to prominence. It's almost as if it wasn't enough of a challenge for God to have Joseph be a slave who rescues his people. And so he divinely orders that he would be a prisoner who is used by God despite the circumstances. And we see that Joseph has the Lord with him even in the prison because it's described very similarly to the arrangement in the house of Potiphar. Joseph is in charge of everything and the Lord makes his work succeed. We're meant to understand that the blessing of God is upon Joseph and that nothing is going to stop the work of God. Not slavery, not Potiphar's wife conspiring against him, not even prison is going to stop the work that God is going to do through Joseph. And as we come to the end of this passage, we're going to come away with two applications for us to consider from this well-known story. And the first one, I've already addressed, but but it's so important that we need to repeat it. You and I need to flee temptation and flee sin. Joseph didn't hang around. He fled the scene. It's very easy for you and I to cozy up to the things that tempt us most, and then we're surprised when we give in to that temptation again. And so may the story of Joseph and the conviction that comes about by the word of the word of the word the work of the word and the work of the Holy Spirit in us motivate us to flee sin, to run away from it, just as Joseph did. And our second application is that we need to remember that God is at work, even in the worst of circumstances. I mentioned this back when we were in the story of Joseph, when he was in the pit, and when he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Remember that Joseph was seen as dead to his father, and as good as dead to the rest of us reading the story. He had been sold to Ishmaelites, and he ended up in slavery in Egypt. The story, in our minds, is as good as over. And when we looked at that story, I pointed out that the story of Joseph points us to the story of Jesus, because even when it seems as though death has won and the plan of God has failed, we find that God is actually doing his best work for his people. Even in prison, God is at work to rescue his people. 
And this was his sovereign rescue plan all along to bring glory to himself. And so as we face the circumstances and the trials that God places before us, may we remember the truth of the gospel, that God has rescued us through the worst possible circumstances. Jesus was dead and in the tomb, but it was our path to salvation. May we trust that God is able to work all things for good for those who love him. And may you and I patiently believe that we are his And just like Joseph, we are blessed. And so nothing can remove us from the hand of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.